Hi everybody, I'm to this day John Atak so far and this is uh, John Hunter PhD who uh, has I think some remarkable insights which um, I'm very glad that you're going to be sharing with us John so uh, let, let's uh, carry on from where we left off last time. Eh? Perfect yeah very good to see you again and yeah looking forward to it. Hmm. So, launch us into the, the subject, if you would. Okay, great. I mean, I think last time we spent quite a lot of time talking about the, the biological manipulation or the neurobiological manipulation that it seems may be occurring in large group awareness training. So, um, essentially, the dopaminergic defense, putting people through a significant amount of stress for a period of time and then abruptly replacing it with social reward or love and joy and affirmation and those sorts of things and how that can trigger an elevated uh, state so um, so in simple what happens is that when you're put yeah. under stress you'll produce more dopamine to cope with it and if you're then dropped into a reward then you'll get a, a flood of dopamine uh, yeah. In, yeah in in very simple terms i mean i think the other thing to maybe mention which is uh, spoken about in uh, anna lemka's book dopamine nation is the idea of the pleasure pain balance so if you put a person through a significant amount of pain or you know psychological pain stress for a period of time then the dopamine system becomes more sensitive to reward so by creating that stressful period and then applying a, a, a very sort of powerful social reward you have this exaggerated response and essentially LGATs or large group awareness trainings are putting people through an environment that is not normal and because of that, you're getting an abnormal response. I think it was uh, Viktor Frankl who said an abnormal response to an abnormal situation is normal. And I think that's what's going on in, in large group awareness trainings. Mm. But that's, the, that's the, the effect that these organizations or these trainings seem to have on mood or affect. So people feel euphoric and confident and optimistic and hugely energetic and productive and creative and all these sorts of things. And it's seen by them as a as confirmation almost of what they're being told. So a lot of the the philosophies and some of the obligations that are that are mentioned throughout the the seminar are made to seem more true or more real than what I, I think a a rational person would uh, conclude if they were given the time and space to to consider it. So what I wanted to talk about is. Um, something called the elaboration likelihood model and so moving from sort of the neurobiology to the psychology of, of persuasion mm. there's this model that was developed i think in 1980 by richard petty and john cacioppo and it's known as the elaboration likelihood model and again in the last time we spoke we said the dopaminergic defense hypothesis is not as um it's not as intimidating as it sounds and, and similarly the elaboration likelihood model all that it really is, um, if you substitute the word thinking for elaboration, then you've got a very good sense of what okay. it's about. So basically, it, it's a, a model to predict how likely it is that a person's going to think deeply about something before making a decision about it. And this is a model that's well accepted within mainstream psychology. So I mean, it's I think the initial article has been cited, I don't know, eight thousand or ten thousand times. So it's not a it's not a fringe 
um, model. It's it's very well accepted. And very basically, what the model says is that there are two routes to persuasion. There's the central route and there's the peripheral route. And the central route relies on taking your time and looking at all of the evidence. And that's effectively engaging your rational brain. So this what is that, like Kahneman's system one, system two. So the, the central route would be aligned with Kahneman's system two perfectly, 100%. Yeah. So if you've read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, then the, the central route aligns with, with system two. And then the peripheral route aligns with system one, which is quick thinking. So it's it's much easier. It's faster. It relies on heuristics but it can be wrong. So it's useful to use it a lot of the time. We don't have the mental capacity to, to think through everything that we need to think through. But um, so we use the, the peripheral roots or system one. However, it can be manipulated because it's not relying on evidence. It's relying on a certain number of shortcuts. And what I would argue is that in large group awareness training, certainly, and you know, I'm sure you're, um, your viewers will be able to comment on the degree to which it happens in, in other groups. Mm. What takes place in a large group awareness training is that they make it far, far more likely that you're going to use the peripheral route, mm. and then they manipulate features of the the peripheral route, which, um, well, they, they they know how to manipulate things that affect your peripheral route's thinking. Mm. So what's... Uh, the the authors uh, uh, Petty and Cacioba uh, argues that there are two main things that affect how likely it is that you're going to think about things deeply. So how likely it is that you'll use the the central routes, and that is whether you have um, the ability and whether you have the motivation to think about these things. So. Um, in terms of ability, it, it refers to whether you have the, you know, the intelligence. And then some psychologists have thrown an opportunity as well. So you might have the intelligence, but you just may not have the the time or the, you know, to actually get through all the, the evidence. So that's got to do with ability. The other thing is motivation. So do you think it's worth your time to actually figure this this thing out? So for example, if you go to a dentist you'll probably trust that the dentist is going to give you reasonable advice. If you go to a doctor, you don't have time to go and study medicine just so you can make those decisions for yourself. So sometimes you have to outsource your thinking, which is a heuristic, obviously. And you might think, well, maybe I've got the ability to figure all this stuff out, but I don't necessarily have the time and I'm not really motivated to do it. I'm going to find some way of deciding whether I should trust this doctor or not. And then I'm going to outsource my thinking to, to that person. So what you see in a, in a large group awareness training is that over the three or four or five days that the, the training occurs is that both of these elements, ability and motivation, are, are very severely undermined. So ability is going to be undermined because you're sitting in sessions for 12 hours at a minimum. So you're there from nine in the morning till maybe 10 at night, 11 at night, 12 at night. You know, they're relatively short breaks. You're getting very tired. There's an overload of information. So mm -hmm. if you hear any people talking about going through these things, there's a huge amount of information. It's often presented in quite an obscure way. So um, it's it's supposed to be, I would say that it's philosophically pompous. Like there's a lot of 
jargon thrown around mm -hmm. and it's quite difficult to really understand it. So you get very tired. There's a ton of information. Um, additionally, you don't have the opportunity to really think about it and knock ideas back and forth with people because you moved, you can't sit next to the same person after a break. The breaks are relatively short. You're supposed to use the breaks to call people up. They give you homework every night. So even when you leave at 10, you know, maybe 12 o'clock, then you've got to go and complete this homework. There's no time to really reflect on anything. So your ability to think about the information that's being presented is highly limited. In terms of motivation, um, they spend quite a lot of time convincing you very basically to not think about it. I mean, I, I don't really know how else to, to say that, but they'll say to participants, you know, come from your, your heart, not from your head. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. You, there's no way that you're going to be able to understand all of these, these things. You need to just trust the process. So there's a lot of emphasis on, um, on really just trusting the, the process and also a huge amount of emphasis on the, on it, on personal experience. So not only are they undermining critical thinking, but they're also elevating experience as a supreme way of knowing. So then at the end, when they trigger this really powerful experience, participants are not able to think about things, they haven't had time to process, and they are more likely to take that experience and use it as a substitute for real critical thinking and mm -hmm. um, running through the, the evidence. So that's the the sort of framework or the what I'd like to kind of start by by speaking about. I'd like to run through a couple of other things that that sort of align with um with peripheral roots thinking. So things that participants are unaware of that may be influencing them, but that are very likely influencing them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've got a couple of things written down, so I might have to just check my notes of course. every um now and again um all right so when, when people are in a in a state of not thinking for themselves one of the things that they're likely to do is to outsource their thinking to an authority figure mm. that authority figure can be an individual um it can be a group of individuals so it can be the group of people that you're with so if you're not really sure about what's going on it's it's quite likely that you'll look around you to try and get a a sense of what the right way to behave is the, the right way to respond is all that sort of things. And an authority figure can actually also just be an organization. So say, for example, um, for an individual at an organization. So if, if there's an individual who works for Harvard or Stanford or Oxford or Cambridge, or if Cambridge has, for example, um, endorsed a particular product or program or something like that, mm -hmm. that's going to be a shortcut. Rather than looking into the information for yourself, you might say, okay, well, they obviously know what they're doing, so I'm going to mm -hmm. trust um, then when I when I was a kid, um, cigarettes would have by appointment to whichever royal house smoked them. So that told us that we should be smoking Dunhill because the Queen smoked them or what have you. So that that well, appeal to an authority, because obviously you know, royal people know a lot about tobacco and the qualities of tobacco. You know, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I mean, obviously, soccer players know a lot about um, about which chips you should eat and. You know, John John Travolta and Tom Cruise know that you ought to be a Scientologist. So yeah, and so and so our brains do work in a in a strange way in terms mm. of authority. I mean, there's a 
and we, we make these kind of associations between various things and authority in quite an odd way. I mean, there was a, an interesting study done at a university, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but what happened was that a person would come into a room full of students, and the person would be introduced either just by their name or by their qualification, and then the, and then or by their qualification, and the qual qualification would get higher and higher. Mm. So that if they were introduced as this person with a master's degree, then whatever, then this person with a PhD, and then this person who has published X number of articles and done whatever. And then all that they did was they asked the students in the different groups to estimate how tall the person was. And the, the higher the qualification, the taller the person was estimated to be. And they've done the same thing with, um, with presidential candidates. So before mm. the election, before it's decided, they ask, you know, couple thousand people to estimate how how tall each of the candidates are and then after the election and inevitably after the election the person who's won gets estimated to be taller the person who's lost gets estimated to be mm. shorter than what they were originally um, estimated to be so we've got this very strange association with authority but what what occurs in, in Elgats is that and Margaret Singer spoke about this in, in cults in our midst and if you read my PhD you'll see a, a number of examples of this but the trainers will come in and a lot of what they do is about establishing establishing themselves as authority figures. Yeah. The way that they dress, the way that they project themselves, the way that they talk, their confidence, everything there is about asserting authority. And mm -hmm. it's not only about elevating their own authority, it's also about undermining the authority of the participants. So what happens is an authority gap starts to mm -hmm. develop over the over the, the the duration of the training. So people kind of come in maybe thinking that they're in line. The trainer starts elevating himself or herself and pushing everyone else down. And the, the wider that gap, the greater the chances that individuals are going to start doubting themselves and start outsourcing their thinking to the to the trainers. Now, um, I mean, to interrupt at that point, when I oh. arrived in Scientology, um, I was told that the man who'd started it was a wounded war hero who had developed a psychotherapy that had cured his war wounds. He had studied with gurus in the East and he was a nuclear physicist. So he had brought together the yeah. mysticism of the East with precision science and was able to do this thing. None of these things was in fact true, but it, it creates you know a, a huge authority for this guy that he's achieved these things. In fact, he was a pulp writer and a congenital liar, yeah. you know, but there you go. <laughs> Exactly. And it's and it's not only the individuals that are elevated like that. So mm -hmm. the the technology and the background is is also distorted. So when you look at the, the history of, of LGATS, you see clearly cognitive therapy principles are being mm -hmm. brought in. There's elements of Scientology, there's elements of this and that. Rational and they kind of acknowledge to a degree, mm -hmm. but there's there's also the sense given that and every Elgat seems to do this, that they have created something new and special. And the more time you spend looking at them, you realize that everyone's pretty much doing, you know, very similar things, if not the, um, if not the same things. Pretty much um, the same. I, I've observed elsewhere that, that uh, in the last year, that the people who started The Secret, the law of attraction, have come back and said, 14 years later, we have found a new secret. And they then explain what they've found. And by strange chance, the next thing that came up on my feed was a Napoleon Hill documentary from 1953, I think, where he oh, said exactly the same things that they had just discovered, you know. So. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, Napoleon Hill is cited as one of uh, Erhard's uh, major inspirations as well. So, um, yeah. Um, so we've got the the technology that's being elevated as an authority. We've got the individual being elevated. We've got the participants are being pushed down, but also the participants have to agree to a very specific set of rules at the beginning, which means that they can't really interact. So if the trainer is able to control the room, then while individuals are kind of looking around, trying to figure out what's going on, they're likely to take cues from other people in the room. Mm -hmm. And you get this, this kind of sense of, of, every, of, of kind of group ignorance where everyone is relying on everyone else to try and figure out what's going on. What a lot of people don't realize is that stooges or plants are present in a lot of these seminars as well. So they know the right, the right way to respond. They are giving the answers that are getting the, the positive responses from the, the trainers and that sort of thing. So these people can actually shift the, the way that everyone is interpreting things in quite a, in quite a significant way. Um, so that's the, the, the one thing, um, I think something else that, um, participants are not aware of is the effect of commitment. So Robert Cialdini speaks about it in, in, uh, in influence and Edgar Schein spoke about it and spoke about it in terms of how, you know, during the Korean war, the Chinese were very aware of how public commitments were very likely to lead to specific types of, of behaviors. And so at the beginning of an LGAT, the, the trainers will often sit with participants and say to them, do you commit to staying you know, for the rest of the training? Do you commit to these rules? And there's, a, there's another element to those commitments. So those are public commitments, but there's also an element of um, responsibility. So you're far more likely to accept responsibility for everything that you've been through and agreed to if you don't feel that you've been manipulated into doing anything. So at the start of the training, the trainers will sit with participants and they'll sit with them one by one and say, who has been forced to come here? And some hands will go up and then they'll sit with each person and work with them until they acknowledge that it was actually their decision mm -hmm. to come there. And when you read some of the encounters, it's quite hilarious because a person will say well my wife said if I don't come then you know we're going to get divorced so I feel like I am under pressure and through you know 10 15 30 an hour-long conversation eventually the person will say okay I acknowledge that it's my choice to mm. to be here and that that plays a role uh later on mm. um, I mean, that's something that's also tested in Scientology that um, when oh, really? you get to the so-called study technology, you, you're being told, you know, if you are not here on your own determinism and for yourself, then you will not benefit in any way. And then the other part of it is if you leave, it's so, well, you weren't here on your own determinism and so it didn't work for you. So they've, they've got you either way. And the, the goal, I mean, the goal is to, to elicit agreements from participants while they are there so it's when the participant says i will get family and friends to come you know i will do x y and z if you feel like you've been bullied into doing it then afterwards you just go no no no. i was i was bullied so i don't want to do it and i feel fine about it but if you feel like it was your decision nobody's pressurizing you then it's more likely that you'll follow through on that a big area of focus within Elgats is the, the concept of integrity, which I mean I find hilarious. 
Um, but a lot of time is spent on on integrity. And really I, I was yesterday reading about Van Eyhart having his followers choke his wife almost to death to humiliate her, talking about integrity, you know? Yes, well, I mean, there is a book written to refute that. Um, that's I would well, the statement I read was by the uh, physician who actually choked her. So he uh, seemed uh, to think uh, he uh, seemed Bob, to think he'd Bob been Lossel, told yeah. to do it. <laughs> yeah, Bob Lazel, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean, apparently that's not good enough evidence for for some mm. people. Apparently, it was a conspiracy by Scientology. So that's oh, yeah. the yeah, that's the that would make sense of it. The other, the other side of the story. I mean, I mean and um, let me just just add for the, for, for the amusement of our audience that I was approached by then Earhart um, to uh, help him defend himself against Scientology in 1991. And uh, while I was still mulling over the ethical dilemma of this, he ran away to South America because allegations were being made by his uh, wife and his children about his abuse of them. So. Uh, and and as employees, I touched um, that story at that point. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd advise anyone to have a look at the the evidence if they can find it from both sides and and weigh it up and see which seems uh, more more valid. Um, yes, more credible. Yeah. Um, so then another thing that um, Cialdini speaks about is one sided information, and I mean, and this is obviously something that we're very aware of, and. You know, studies again have been done on this where they'll give people one side of an argument in a law case, and then they'll give other people the other side of the argument. And then these people will be told, you've only been given one side, there is another side, but they will still think that the side that they've got is the mm. definitely must be the, the correct answer. So we obviously see this with the echo chambers on online and with news sources that really present either information from the left or from the right, that if you're fed only one side of the information, it's it's very difficult to, to, to think critically about things. And in an Elgad environment, the trainer is very much controlling what information is shared. Mm. So if the, the participant is trying to say something that goes against uh, the, the leader's um, ideas, they'll be shut down and humiliated and they won't be able to really get that point across or they'll be made to look quite stupid. And that's not necessarily because they're wrong. It's because the trainers are in a position where they're controlling the, the communication and the dialogue in a, in a very specific way. So again, Participants may not be aware that they're not hearing both sides of the the, the story while they are sitting in. And, and there is a group thing that that happens there. I had a call many years ago from a, a therapist who'd attended a a, a course in um, reevaluation co counselling, and she very quickly during this course said, "But this sounds awfully like Ron Hubbard's Dianetics," and yes. it wasn't just the person teaching it. But the whole class were going, no, no, we want to learn this thing, stop it. Now, it is Dianetics and uh, nothing more, nothing less. Jackins lied and said that it wasn't. I found a picture of him shaking hands with Hubbard, receiving a certificate, which I think disproved that. And then again, there were allegations of abuse against Jackins. And the Open University, the largest university in the world, had been 
give it, teaching its students these methods, I think, for 20 years by then. And I'd yeah. protested and said, this is what you're doing, and nothing happened. And then Jackins is tainted, and the method no longer works, we find, which uh, is a little difficult for me. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of these things do give these immediate sort of short-term senses of knowing or highs or whatever, Sorry, and yeah. people don't like to give up their their favorite toy when it seems to be working very nicely for them. So it's very important that that you know bringing about states of, infur of euphoria, and it's so easy to do. You know, get somebody to stare at something, get somebody to repeat a word over and over get somebody to sit in a completely so many techniques that are used um you know when um hebrew and um muslim scholars uh, are reading texts they daven they do this yeah and they're inducing states which make them feel good and i, I recently wrote a chapter for a book about eastern spirituality and, and psychiatry and um it interested me just listing the techniques one by one and saying, well, actually fasting, um, sleep deprivation, things that are considered normal in religious groups, which yeah. can lead to these states, which people will then think are some kind of supernatural gift, which are actually, course, yeah. you know, it's just what happens when you, when you stare at something for too long, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to uh, sort of complete a book that I started a couple of years ago, which is very much on this topic. And I'm quite interested to hear from, because my my kind of background is um, obviously Elgats and then mm -hmm. Christianity. And I think that there's definitely elements of the sort of dopaminergic defense that goes on in some forms of Christianity. But I'd love to hear and about that. how this process might be operating in Scientology and in in other spaces as well. Mm. well yeah. In Scientology, you have a couple of thousand different procedures, which boil down to, you know, less than 10 approaches in all. But in almost all of them, you are to take the person to um, having very good indicators, which is, you know, a, a way of depoeticizing the English language, which Hubbard was particularly good at. Uh, it's a way of inducing euphoria. You make somebody feel high. You, you make them want to write a testimonial, a success story. You make them want to, you know, do you want others to have, you know, the games this, that you now have? Is this there some form of suffering leading up to that? Well, no, this, this will, there, there may be some sort of, it does get pretty crazy, but um, you have uh, traumatic incidents that you're meant to be going through and that will start with things that have happened to you in your life and then you'll yeah. be asked is there an earlier similar incident of this and magically you'll suddenly be transported into your past lives where yeah. so and it's difficult to know that the level the degree of trauma that's actually involved when you're dealing with imaginary material because you know, oh I'm well i mean confident I, I, it is imaginary well yeah i mean i, I think that that's the interesting thing about stress is that we think of it as a sort of a response to physical challenges, but we mm -hmm. can conjure up these things in our minds very easily and it leads to exactly the same stress response. So yeah. if you are thinking about something traumatic, whether or not it happened or didn't happen, if you're thinking about it, it can generate uh, quite a strong stress response. Mm. 
Um, but you also have positive memories, uh, which is called a straight wire pro procedure. And again, it, it, just by getting somebody to repeat the procedure, and in Scientology, the the person giving the the procedure, and they would say he's a counselor. I I'm hesitant about you know using that term. They call them auditors, people who listen. Yeah. But you are meant within these procedures to command the person. What what you say is a command. It's not a question, and it's written down in front of you, and you have to use exactly the same words over and over again. And I'm sure that just through that repetition of the process, that people yeah. start to fall into a kind of altered state, euphoric yeah. state. No, that makes sense. Certainly, I I think I would find that quite unpleasant to have to keep doing it for and they do it for a long period of time I mean that is two hour is sessions stressful. are not unusual and, and yeah I mean that that is stressful in itself mm. um all right then we we get on to repetition um mm. which I mean I've literally got the word written down here and we've just been speaking about it but again um Cialdini, there's a, a great book called um, The Wisest One in the Room by Thomas Gilovich and Lee Ross, I think from Cornell University and Stanford University, they're social psychologists. And we are very, we, we're not very good as humans at distinguishing between the truth and things that we hear a lot of times. Mm. So if we hear things frequently, we start assuming that they are true. And this is kind of like uh, providing one side of the information because if you're hearing the same information over and over again but in Algats the the trainer will repeat things over and over and over again I mean I I noticed that in in my training the 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 leader I also really don't like that term um but he would say things in quite a rhythmic tone and he would say them over and over again and we are very bad at distinguishing between truth and things that we hear a lot, particularly when we're operating in system one thinking or using the peripheral route. So the more engaged we are, the more likely we're able to go, okay, well, that's just something that I've heard a lot. But if we're tired, if things, if we hear things a lot, they sound like they are um, true to us. Yes. Um, and then finally, there's the idea of reciprocation, which is one of Cialdini's um, principles of of persuasion and what tends to happen in Olgats is that they will say to you you've had this incredible experience and somebody's invited you to have this amazing experience now you don't you think that you need to like pay this forward don't you feel like you need to to do the same for somebody else as somebody has done for you. And obviously this is done when people are in this elevated state mm. at the end of the, the training and then people will commit to doing that. And because integrity has been emphasized such a lot and agreements have been emphasized such a lot it makes it more likely that participants will actually go out and um, recruit people because they don't want to break their integrity that's something that they've been that's been drummed into them for the past three or four or five days so those are just some of the things that are that are going on in terms of the 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 final euphoria that is that is generated this is what I, I think is, is maybe one of the more interesting things from a psychological perspective is 
one of the rules in LGATs is almost without exception that you can't take notes. You're not allowed to write anything down. And that may seem like an arbitrary thing. It may seem like the reason for that is, I mean, the, the trainers will always have a justification for what they're doing. I believe that many of the justifications are misleading, but they will say, for example, we want you to focus on what's going on, mm. right? Not being able to write things down, by the way, limits your ability in terms of the elaboration likelihood model. You can't review things if you haven't written anything down. But you haven't written anything down because they know that at the end, they're going to trigger this really powerful, positive experience. And there's something called the experiencing versus the remembering self. Kahneman speaks about it in Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, he, he also refers to it as the peak end rule. So the peak end rule is that we don't remember things as they occur. We remember things as they are at the, the highest peak and how they are at the end. So for example, studies have been done where they'll put people's hands into freezing cold water. So the first, the first uh, group of participants will put their hands, well, actually they'll, they'll do it with the same group of participants. So it's usually a within participants design. If my students are listening, they should know what that means. But basically the group of participants will um, put their hand into freezing cold water, let's just say for two minutes. Mm. And then they'll be allowed to go and do something else for a while. And then they'll come back when they've fully recovered. And then they'll put their hand in the same cold water for two minutes. And then maybe another 30 seconds where the water is still freezing, but not as freezing. Mm. So the end of the experience is, is more pleasant. So these second group has gone through all of the pain of the first group plus some more pain but it just wasn't quite as bad and they'll ask the participants without telling them exactly how long everything was they'll ask them which of the two situations would you prefer to to do again and the vast majority say they prefer the second situation because they remember it based on how it felt at the end not mm. so even though the, the second experience is clearly worse and they've done a number of other studies that have demonstrated this, this peak end rule. But essentially, how it relates to LGATs is that participants get put through this incredible amount of stress for three or four or five days, but they're not allowed to write anything down. They don't have a very good recall of, of everything that has happened. At the end, they get pushed into this incredibly elevated state where they feel amazing. And, if, and then they feel like the entire process was amazing. Mm. I remember speaking to participants from the LGAT that I was uh, a part of, and I asked them what they thought of it. And they said it was the greatest thing ever. And this was like a day or two later, it was the greatest thing ever. And so then I'd say to them, well, do you remember when the trainer was standing a foot away from that, that woman who was probably in her 60s, you know, with the crucifix around her neck, and he was screaming in her face. And then you can kind of see them trying to reconcile what they do actually remember hap happening with their memory of the event. And the memory of the event is not in line with the actual events that happened over the, the previous three or four days. And so I think that participants are unaware that that rule applies and that not being able to write things down, you can't go back and say, oh, I remember writing down, that was really horrible, I felt really tired or hungry or 
frustrated or angry or whatever the, the case was. Instead, because your peripheral route is being engaged, system one, you don't have that information. You're using heuristics and the heuristic is, I feel really good, therefore the experience must have been um, very good. Yeah, I mean, we have a, a video, we mirrored a video called uh, Captive Minds, Hypnosis and Beyond, um, made about 40 years ago on, on the channel. Um, I still don't know anything that's better in explaining certain of the simple principles that are involved. And there's an interview with a Marine, and in, at one point he talks about being forced to stand with a kit bag over your head while being beaten yeah. by drill instructors with swagger sticks. And at another point in the interview, he says there was no unnecessary brutality in the Yes, Marines. I think I've seen this before. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you, you're kind of going, hang on, how we evaluate the experience afterwards, that, that we are fitting things into that heuristic with, with fitting things into saying, well, that's the way things work and this is how it is. And as you say, looking back over the experience, having talked with more than a thousand former members of Scientology and other groups, that the compartmentalization, the ability to regard this as a, as a positive experience, while having just a whole laundry list of horrors that happened along the way, that seems to be, that seems to be a, a quite common thing in human experience. And I, I think you touched on you touched on something else there, where you said no unnecessary brutality, and it's it's likely that that terminology was was used mm. in that process as well. I mean, when you hear people speaking about Elgats, you often hear tough love, mm. which is a which is a manipulation of language to kind of say, well, we're doing this for your own good. Mm. Um, you know, there was a an interview, but or there was a discussion between a Stanford professor and Werner Earhart from quite recently, and they speak about ruthless compassion. And again, I think that that's a, a manipulation of, of language. You know, mm -hmm. for me, it's psychologically abusive. And I think for a lot of people who had to look at the actual uh, interactions, if they weren't in that room and subject to the whole process, which, you know, Elgats love to say, well, if you haven't been through the whole process, then you, you've got no, no room to comment. Um, but there's a very good reason for that, because the process is very effective at convincing people that what I would call psychological abuse is tough love or ruthless compassion or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. And if you would like to you know, read a little bit about it, you can read pages 192 to 318 of my PhD. That's on stress generated in Elgats. And these are not my words. These are all direct quotes pretty much from other people that have taken part and explained what they went through. Mm. If you think that that's tough love, well, good for you. If you think it's ruthless compassion, great. I think most people would look at it and say that seems to be psychologically abusive. Mm. I mean, um, William Sargent in the 50s was making some of the early analyses of um, thought reform. Um, he talks about... Um, paradox, paradoxical thinking. And, and he came up with what has proved to be a wrong idea of what the brain is doing in such um, ultra paradoxical excitation. But the paradox becomes very, very interesting. And it's not simply semantics. If we say ruthless compassion, then ruthless means without mercy. Now, that's yeah. not 
there is no form of compassion that is without mercy. If you don't, if you, we're not talking about benefiting anybody when we talk about being ruthless. This, this is, and it, and I was a particular thing about this because I left Scientology. One of the reasons was because the the guy who leads it now, David Miscavige, said that the new regime was tough, which is okay, and ruthless. And for me, ruthlessness is a negative quality always. There is no situation in which not having mercy towards somebody is the right thing. Then we move to compassion, which means feeling what the other person feels, compassio, literally feeling together. Yeah. And so you're saying, I'm ruthless, but I'm feeling what you're feeling. The, the paradox, it's oxymoronic, it, it's not possible. And that again is a way that groups trap people by putting into a double bind into an idea yeah. that, that cannot make sense. And so you sort of suspend your judgment and say, well, they know what they're talking about. The well, danger exactly. in all authoritarian I mean, systems. You know? Yeah, so I mean, I think, and that goes back to the whole idea of the ability in terms of the elaboration likelihood model is that you do get, and as I said, sort of philosophically pompous, like these ideas that don't like quite make sense. And so you're trying to get your head around them. And there's a lot of jargon thrown in as well that you're also trying to learn and, and understand. And it does make it less likely that you're really going to understand it. I mean, if you had to think about an environment that's designed for people to think rationally to engage Kahneman system too, it wouldn't be an environment that you're there for 12 to 15 hours with short breaks, no real food, um, you know, not being able to write anything down, having to do homework, doing that three or four days in a row. That's not the way for people to think through information. It's a perfect environment to get people to um, start using the peripheral routes or start being persuaded through the, the peripheral routes. Um, another thing that I think people are unaware of is something called reciprocal connections. Um, and again, Kahneman speaks about this in Thinking Fast and Slow. And the idea is that our minds work in two directions, even though we sometimes think of them only working in one. So, for example, if we are happy, we smile. Um, that's how we think of the, the process. But also, if we smile, then we can actually make ourselves happy to, to a degree. And a study was done uh, using, I'm sure you'll remember this, my students never do, uh, Far Side Cartoons, Gary Larson. Larson yeah. yeah, so they, they did a study with uh, some Far Side Cartoons, and they, they asked one group, and this would be a between participants designed for my students in terms of an experiment. So they asked one group to um, put a, a pencil in their mouth sideways like that. And another group to put in their mouth like this. So, okay. So one group was smiling and one group was frowning. So just the facial muscles are doing something slightly different. And they just asked them to, to rate how funny they found the cartoons. And, you know, when they compared the two groups to each other, the people that were smiling found the, the, the cartoons funnier than the, the group that was mm. frowning. They've done two other good experiments that are very similar. One was they said to one group, we want you to test this audio equipment. And so to elicit distortions, one group was told to nod their heads. The other group was told to shake their heads from side to side. Mm. Nodding is associated with agreement. Uh, shaking your head is associated with disagreement. They played something in the background. So they played some piece of information in the background, but they didn't say pay attention to it. 
but they played it in the background. And then afterwards, they asked these participants a bunch of questions, some of which related to things that were said in the, in the background. The people that were nodding their heads were far more likely to agree with what they had heard than the people that were shaking their heads mm -hmm. from side to side. Because unconsciously, we're associating shaking our heads with we don't agree with this, nodding with we do agree with this. So how does this relate to LGATs? So one of the rules that you agree to in an LGAT is that you will applaud. When, when you are instructed to applaud, you must applaud. And it's it's one of these things that you hear people saying, applause was just insane. You know, we had to applaud all the time. Um, but when you read about it, applause happens when the trainer effectively wins the discussion. Mm -hmm. So once the, there's been an, like an interaction, when the person comes on board with what the trainer has has kind of been trying to put forward and has a breakthrough, that's when everyone applauds. And so unconsciously, again, because you're not engaging system two, system one is running things after a couple of days, you associate the fact that you're applauding with things with agreeing with um, what's being said. And participants are not aware that this is, is influencing them. No. And, and, and sorry, if we just, go down to you know a very simple yeah. experiments that's often been repeated where where you have a bunch of people um, sat on chairs who all get up together and then sit down. Yes. And when you introduce somebody new to the group, most people, and it's probably that eighty percent number, yeah, will actually they've no idea why they're getting up and sitting down, but they'll do it. Um, you know, so the Sol sure. Solomon and, Ash lines test and things like that. Yes, that, yeah, yeah. That the, the Part of that is is the desire to fit in, um, to be part of, of a group. And the, the, you, you make me think about a differentiation that's made in, in Scientology between thinking and looking. And thinking is held to be a bad thing and looking is held to be a good thing. So you have the experience and that's good rather than thinking about something, you know, and that's bad. And of course, yeah. You know, thinking can actually be quite useful, I've found, you know. Yes, um, it's it's certainly not useful for people that are trying to get you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise mm. do. So exactly. telling people to come from their hearts and not from their heads, telling people that understanding is the booby prize, which these organizations do. There's a, a very heavy emphasis on convincing people that to to, to reduce motivation to to think. Linked to the applause um, is, and again, this, this comes down to the whole authority status. Um, I spoke about the authority gap, so pushing people down, elevating the, the trainers up. There's something called, I mean, priming, which yeah, yeah. again, is spoken about in a number of uh, these, these books on social psychology. Mm. And a good example of it is the Florida effect. So the Florida effect Again, a study was done where, and this is just representative of of um, of priming, where they gave people sentences to um, unscramble. So they gave one group group of people a bunch of sentences to unscramble, and it included words like forgetful and bald and Florida and you know these things associated with being older. Um, mm. It's just some of the words. It wasn't. It wasn't obvious, and the participants weren't aware that that those were the words that were in there. Another group they didn't do that to, and then all that they did was they timed how long these two groups of participants took to walk from the one room to the another room that they had to get to, 
And the, the Florida group, the older group, took a lot longer. They walked a lot more slowly. Mm -hmm. They were primed to, to be associating with being a bit older. And that's, I mean, a, a very simple example. In OGATs, they spend a lot of time on regression exercises. So, so there are a lot of exercises that involve going back to when you were a child, remembering things, interactions with your mother and father. And there are two things that those exercises do. Obviously, they can generate a lot of stress, which is relevant to the dopaminergic defense. But the other thing is that they are they are priming participants to be in a childlike state. And children are far more likely to outsource their thinking to authority figures than adults are. So again, participants are not aware that by thinking about being a child, by putting themselves in, in that state for a, a period of time, it's making them more likely to outsource their thinking, particularly if they don't have the motivation or the ability to um, engage system to thinking. So these are, these, and there, there are a lot of these things that are going on. And I just feel like participants, they don't have this information going in there and they're unaware of it. So when they get to a point where they have got strong beliefs about what these programs are about and how useful they are and X, Y, and Z, they don't realize that that information has not been presented to them in what I would call a fair way. It hasn't been presented to them in a way which allows them to really evaluate the evidence and and be autonomous in, in actually owning the their decision on whether they want to support the organization or not. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a classic authoritarian situation where, as you say, you're being infantilized, you, you're being reduced, the authority of the group is being elevated. You know, I, I can remember as a teenager wanting to understand how the world worked and that being a, a desperate need to, to understand that and, and feeling dissatisfied with, with the answers that I was being offered. So that, you know, I'd, I'd grown up in the Christian church and at the age of 13 had sort of gone, I, I don't like the sound of the God you believe in. He sounds deeply unpleasant to me. And somebody that would want to be worshipped is somebody that shouldn't be worshipped. So, you know, if we can have a more friendly association, but it just stopped, just suddenly stopped feeling credible to me. I then went yeah. from there, you know, when I was about 17, I read the Tao Te Ching, which, which I still recommend as a, as a remarkable text. You can buy my own translation of it here. Um, that's useful because it, it didn't, I didn't have to join the Taoist community. I didn't have to become part of anything. I just had this text that that said these things that I could go away, digest, think about, and have been thinking about for 50 years now. But then I, I wandered into Zen Buddhism. And there's something to be said about the concept that Werner Erhardt had was, there's a point where he said that what he did was he took Zen Buddhism and added Scientology to it. And while I will accept that he did have a very simplistic notion of what Zen Buddhism is, he does not, to me, appear to be somebody who'd studied it with any seriousness. And I would say, sadly, I would say the same for many of the advocates of um, mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn particularly, they haven't studied Buddhism. Um, but the concept that Earhart took from Zen and it is particular to Zen among the Buddhist Mahayana um, groups, is the bursting of the bag. And this is the idea that, that you crowd the intellect so hard 
that somebody can no longer think for themselves. And the idea is there'll be an explosion, the confusion will cause this enlightenment, this illumination, satori as the Japanese call it, and from then yeah. on you will see things as they are. Now, I am sad to say that 50 years later, I don't believe a word of this. You know, I don't believe that confusing the hell out of people is useful for them. And <clears throat> I have terrible doubts about the Zen Buddhist community. They've all, every sect, Soto, Abaku, Rinzai, they've all apologized for the training of the Japanese military from the Meiji Restoration in 1868, right through the Second War. They were all yeah. taught mindfulness on a, on a daily basis. They practiced Zazen, which is the mindfulness meditation, which John Kabat-Zinn um, and more recently Daniel Goleman tell us is all you have to do to achieve compassion. You sort of going, have you looked at what the Imperial Army did during World War II or what it did in Korea from enslaving the whole population in 1910? The Nanjing Massacre, killing 400,000 civilians. There's never been an event like it anywhere. Even Hiroshima yeah. does not, and Dresden don't come close in terms of the casualties. And the guy that performed the Nanjing Massacre received a letter of commendation from his Zen master. So the idea that these guys, generation on generation, are passing this wisdom of enlightenment down, sorry, can't buy that. So, and Earhart buys into this simple idea, and I'm sort of going, well, if I'm going to let somebody explode my mind, I've got to be pretty trusting about who they are. This hasn't got to be like, a friend of mine said this was really great, and my wife says she'll leave me if I don't do it. You know, I'd need a bit more than that now, but it's 50 years later for me. You know, I've had a long time to consider these ideas. And, yeah, sadly, I mean, and I, young people aren't taught this. Yeah, and I, I, I think the, the thing that it also comes back to is that participants are told not to reveal any detail about what actually takes place. They're told that that will spoil the, the experience. So it's the um, same way that with psychics, that it doesn't work if there are disbelievers in the room, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so what, what else? There was something else that I wanted to mention. I, th I think the, the last thing was the, the monitoring. Um, and again, you, you read about this in social psychology um, books that have, have got no, they've got no association with LGATs or, you know, problematic groups, but their comments, I think it's, it's in a, uh, in the Gilovich and Ross book, but there's a statement, something along the lines of there can be no doubt that the the portraits of, of a leader on the wall uh, shuts down critical thinking. So having the sort of all-knowing, all-seeing leader on the wall, kind of like Big Brother. Mm. Um, Very much is, like is Big Brother. To, and that, that was limit... the exact analogy I came to when I joined Scientology. There are all these pictures yeah. of this man and, and it worried me from the start. But not yeah, enough, I'm, evidently. I mean, they, they've even done those those very basic studies where they put a, a, a set of eyes um, next to a, an honesty jar for 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 food and people in university uh, canteens and that sort of thing. And if their eyes there or if their flowers there, they compare, you know, how honest people have been. And when the eyes are there, people are a lot more more honest. In an LGAT, you've you've always got a trainer, but you've also got a number of assistants mm. that are kind of sitting behind you and you can't see them or they're walking around sort of monitoring everything that's going on. So you can't, you don't feel like you can speak to somebody because that's one of the, the rules, but you just feel like you're being 
watched and monitored the whole time. And a lot of people comment on that. So again, that's not that's not very useful for, for generating independent thinking. Um, you know, I mean, Big Brother is literally the the prototype of of an authoritarian society. So having an environment where you feel like you're constantly being monitored is very similar to, you know, um, the situation in, in 1984. Um, yeah. And it's something that, that is typical in our education system. You know, I, I wrote something about authoritarianism the other day, which I may or may not use somewhere, but it, it was sort of, well, how did this start for me? What my concern with authoritarianism, the idea of, you know, the, the all knowing leader who tells us what to do and we aren't clever enough. So we do what they say, which, which does appear to affect the majority of people in our society. Perhaps 60% of people are responsive to that kind of rank authority. And for me, going to school at the age of five and suddenly finding myself in an environment where there were these big people who shouted at me and could and a couple of times did hit me yeah um quite capriciously and i'd come you know i was very lucky i came from a highly functional family i have three older brothers um there's a fair amount of rough and tumble but it was a fair environment it wasn't an environment where anybody was being belittled you know or put down and moving into this environment where it was perfectly normal to yeah. to be obedient to to do as you were told um and I, I think you know setting that standard i mean i always defer to to my friend ara chaloff and his book intelligent disobedience which i i think should be read by all school teachers by all teachers to say we really should be if we're going to cultivate independence assertiveness critical thinking we have to teach people how to disagree we have to teach people how to respectfully you know to to disagree agreeably as i say that and kids are just not being taught that so they're being prepared as lambs for the slaughter by these groups which will exploit them and as you say take over their interpretation of reality and as children yeah, we don't know how to interpret reality, and we're not taught. It, it's it's as if there's well, a fear that if we, if we learn the tricks of thinking, we might disagree with the way our let's face it rather crazy society functions. Yeah, it's it's funny you mention that the study that I've actually just sent through or a month or so maybe ago um, to a journal is on freedom of expression at higher education institutions, and it's a big problem. Um, there's a, an organization, the Heterodox Academy in, in the United States. Um, Jonathan Haidt was one of the, the founders of it. And they do this uh, campus expression survey in the US to see how, how willing students are to speak about controversial topics. So it, it's that, that's not so much about critical thinking, but it's about the ability to engage on controversial topics, which is crucial for critical thinking. Yeah. And it just seems like a lot of higher education um students are unwilling to engage on anything that that may be controversial they're very worried about being seen to be offensive um you know which is it's it's a it's a real it is a real it's a real challenge and it's it's sad when you see uh, young people 
losing that confidence to to push back and you sort of see them you know sitting back and and looking a bit defeated and realizing it's there's no point in this i'm just going to kind of go with the the program yeah we, um, i mean we've seen an incredible shift my dear late friend alan shefflin who who passed a couple of weeks ago um we were going to do an interview about the what it was that had made him give his lifetime to understanding exploitative persuasion undue influence coercive control and he told me that, and sadly we didn't record the interview, but he told me that in 1963 he went to, a, he was a student, and, and he went to a talk by George Lincoln Rockwell. Rockwell was the head of the American Nazi Party. So I think we, we know, a, and Alan was bemoaning the cancel culture and saying, you know, now he wouldn't be allowed to talk, but he may have inspired a few people to become Nazis, but he inspired a lot of us to stand up against the idea of fascism. Yeah. And yeah. it's the presumption that people's minds can be so easily swayed, you know, by some diabolic influence, rather than teaching people to say, well, and I've, you know, I've spent a lifetime doing it. If somebody has what is to me an odious belief, I'll sit down and talk with them in the hope yeah. that I can perhaps get them to see things a little differently. And sometimes that happens, which is good. Whereas if I go, well, I'm not talking to you because we, yeah. we get nowhere. You get the megaphone no. culture. 100% agree. Oh. Um, so I'd, I'd like to speak about a couple of things now. And these are the things that may be slightly controversial. So what I'd like to talk about now that we've got an understanding of the elaboration likelihood model and peripheral thinking and the likelihood of people outsourcing their thinking to authority figures or, or things like that. I'd like to speak about three sort of major forms of, of evidence used by one of the big large group awareness trainings. So the, the first is if you go onto, and I won't mention the name of the organization, but if you go onto their websites, they've got a section called independent research. So one would think that all of the, their best research would be sitting there. Anyone that knows anything about how research is conducted would look at those studies and would, you know, be very, very concerned that these are being taken seriously. There's, none of them are published in a peer-reviewed journal, and that's where the quality of the study can actually be assessed. And given the magnitude of the claims that are made by LGATs in terms of, you know, they say that they can generate transformations and miracles and X, Y, and Z, they make very bold claims about what they can do. And these are lasting changes that they, that they promise. If they could do a fraction of what they claim that they could do, then a well-designed study with good methodology would be able to pick up um, evidence of those, those claims. When you yeah. look at the studies that are on that website, you don't see any studies that, um, that are published in a peer-reviewed journal. Yes, so, a little bit if they different. want to be taken more seriously, they've got the money to get studies done by professionals. And if they are, are achieving what they claim to achieve, they would have studies published that demonstrate um, what they claim. They don't. That is concerning. Let, let me make a, a side comment yeah. on that. I've, I've suddenly, I went and grabbed my copy of The Buddha Pill, 
by Miguel yeah. Farias and, and Catherine Wickham. And in, in this, um, Farias, they're, they're working at Oxford University. Farias is the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Meditation. He's a mindfulness practitioner who admits in this book that he became a meditation junkie and had to cut back. And he had his, um, he asked two postgraduate students to do a database search for articles related to meditation. And they found more than 4,000 articles. Um, and cutting those back, they came to the conclusion, I think that 32 of these, of the studies that were cited in these articles, 32 were actually performed using the proper criteria for a study. So out of 4,032, and he comes to this conclusion, uh, despite the anecdotal evidence on the merits of mindfulness meditation, despite the hundreds of studies produced in the last 20 years, there was no robust scientific evidence that mindfulness has any substantial effect on our minds and behaviours. So these studies will be presented, but you have, we have to learn how to look at a study to see if it's been yeah. replicated, to see if the And again, that is ability and motivation. Yeah. So do you have the ability to understand studies? Do you have the motivation to learn how to understand studies? And if you don't, then you're just going to trust what you're given. I mean, strangely, the same organization, or let's just say the precursor to the same organization, had a study done by Fisher et al. in 1989. Um, what is it called? It's called uh, Psychological Effects of Participation in a Large Group Awareness Training. Mm. Right. So this was done, this study was done with the support of Werner Earhart and Associates. He is literally thanked in the, in the notes on the, the study. The study found, and this was a study that was published in a, in a journal, um, it found almost no short-term effects and found zero long-term effects. So if this organization is aware of this peer-reviewed study, why is that study not available for people to have a look at? Mm -hmm. And why are other studies made, made available? So that to me is concerning. And looking it's at all of those those studies that were done by the tobacco industry that showed that tobacco is completely harmless. In fact, yeah. it's good for you, you know. Additionally, one of the seven, you know, again, independent studies is a, a case study by Harvard Business School on this organization. Harvard has explicitly said our case studies do not serve as an endorsement of anything. It's just for classroom discussion purposes. Mm -hmm. This is from like 1998. I think they, 1998, Harvard called the organization out and said, you know, this is not an endorsement of, of your organization. It is still on their website as evidence of the effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So, if I had to do a study in psychopathology on Jeffrey Dahmer or on Charles Manson, it doesn't mean that I endorse Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer. It's a it's a very strange thing to I'd claim. Like to point out actually, I am actually doing a study on Charles Manson. At the yeah, I, I, I and I do that, not yeah. endorse him. Exactly. So just because you, you're doing a study on somebody is not the same as, as endorsing them. And if you actually go and read what the organization is allowed to share about what this case study said, 
it doesn't say anything positive about them. There's mm. just the assumption that people are going to go, oh, Harvard, make the connection and assume that that there's um, there's an endorsement when there there isn't. And explicitly from Harvard's perspective, there's not um, an endorsement. Okay. So these things can serve as heuristics that convince people that there's legitimacy in what is going on mm. when maybe there's not. So that's the first of the three. Let, that's, let me interject yeah. that, that the... the um nutrition guru Adele Davis, who was huge in the 50s and 60s, wrote books like Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit. And eventually she was taken to court by somebody who'd followed some of her protocols and I believe it had led to the death of a child. And um, But it was serious enough to end up in court. And it came out in court that she hired researchers to look out every paper on the subject of nutrition so that she could list them in the backs of her books. They didn't make any notes of what was said in these studies, and yeah. she certainly didn't look at them. And so it was solely there to pad her authority, to make her look as if she knew what she was talking about, which she most certainly didn't. You know. Yeah. I mean, I think Ben Goldacre has got a great book called Bad Science. It is a great book. I have it right yeah. here. Yeah. There's a, I think he does a TED talk. He does a talk on YouTube, mm. which is also great mm. just for getting people to think about the fact that authority figures can be very misleading. Mm. Um, he speaks about his dead cat, Hetty, getting some qualification that a nutritionist has on their CV. And that's a perfect example of having these things making you sound better than what you are mm. and not looking beyond it and assuming that you should trust a person based on um, these, you know, misleading qualifications. He also gets but, into statistical interpretation. And, and so you get this thing that um, what, you know, it's, it's now found that it was twice as likely that this will happen. And then when you look to the paper, it's they've gone from 0.001% to 0.002%. So it is indeed twice as likely. But yeah. you've, what's been taken away is the likelihood is incredibly low. Yeah. I actually use a similar example with uh, bipolar disorder. So they speak about bipolar disorder being having a much greater chance of aggression than the general public. But again, when you look at the actual figures, it's, you know, from 1% to 2% or something. It's doubled. Something like that. And then if you remove alcohol from the equation, then it's actually just the same. So mm. um, yeah, the, the devil's in the detail. Mm. Um, so, so the second dubious endorsement um, is from the former head or CEO um, of the American Psychological Association, Raymond Fowler, who endorsed Landmark in 1999. And all that I'd like to mention about this is that there, there are things about it that, that seem off to me, and I'd like to, to get somebody's I'd like to get somebody's response on this because this seems strange to me. Okay, so Fowler in 1965 um, became uh, was on the Council of Representatives for the for the American Psychological Association. In 1979, he was on the board of directors. In 1983, he became the treasurer, and then from 1988 to 2003, he was the president and CEO of the American Psychological Association. So over that whole period, he had a very clear, deep involvement in the APA. Mm. In 1983, which is the same year he became treasurer, the APA um, 
they put together a committee called the DIMPAC Committee. So it's the, the, the Committee for Deception on Indirect and um, Means of Persuasion and Control or something like that. Let me, let me think about it. Mm. Um, yeah, so the, the DIMPAC Committee, and it was led by Dr. Margaret Singer. And so from 1983 to 1986, they were asked to look into large group awareness trainings and cults and to produce a report. Mm. And the report was rejected in 1987. So the APA rejected the report. Um, and then in 1992, um, Singer and Richard Offshore sued the APA. So there was clearly a lot of controversy around it. That's the so-called memory wars. Yeah. So the, the mm. and from everything that I've read about it, there seems it seems like that this was a, a fairly controversial issue amongst psychologists. So mm. there were some that were on the side of Singer and Offshore. There were some that that were on side of um, the, the APA ruling, but it certainly was a contentious issue. It wasn't just mm. like, oh, these, this is a fringe group of people, and you know we don't want anything to do with them. So. In 1995, Singer included um, Landmark in her book, Cults in Our Midst, and she was sued in 1996. Yep. So we've got this history, right? We've got Fowler, who's the, now the, the president and CEO of the, the APA. We've had this ruling against the, the DIMPAC committee. We've got this lawsuit um, suing the APA. We've got um, Singer being sued for, for mentioning landmark in her book and that's in 1996 and then in 1999 fowler decides that he's going to endorse he's going to personally endorse landmark mm. so he writes this report basically saying among other things that um that the environment of the training was pleasant okay that the leader was pleasant and sensitive and that the participants seemed relaxed Okay, again, read pages 192 to 318 of my, my mm. PhD, and you can make up your mind about whether it seems participants were relaxed, relaxed whether the trainer seemed pleasant and mm. sensitive, and whether the environment was pleasant. They've even got a disclaimer saying, you know, it's incredibly stressful for a lot of people. So my question is, if you're the head of the APA and you're approached by an organization to provide an endorsement and you know that there's huge controversy amongst psychologists about this group and amongst uh, groups like it, why do you not say, rather ask somebody else? Why, why, do you, why do you do that? It seems a very odd thing for the president of an organization like that to do so i'd just like to leave that and you know i think you can kind of think about that for yourself in the report it doesn't say anything about any possible conflict of interest it doesn't note that other people have got con conflicting views which clearly there were at the time it doesn't say whether or not he was being paid for it or how much he was being paid for it and again these are things that you expect in a for example uh, a journal article that you're publishing because you want to know whether there's a possible reason that this information might be biased in a in a way if he wasn't getting paid great then say that it would seem that if he wasn't getting paid he would have maybe said that but i i could be wrong about that and and we have i mean throughout from the 1970s onwards that there's been a quite a cohort of social scientists who've 
align themselves with groups which some of us consider to be authoritarian cults. So we've had the growth of this idea of the new religious movement. Yeah. Very interested when I, um, a year or so back, I interviewed Eileen Barker, who's one of the people who introduced this term. She was at um, LSE and she wrote a book called New Religious Movement. She told me in this interview she no longer uses the term because she does not consider it accurate. And then finding that many scholars in this field, uh, Gordon J. Melton, for example, um, or um, James Lewis, but there are quite a roster of them, have actually received funding to do their work, which, which puts it off a little bit sideways. The problem that I had with uh, Eileen Barker's original work with the Moonies in the 1970s is that it relies on participant observation. And that's what you've just described, the head of the APA going in and saying, well, the, the environment seemed pleasant and this, that and the other. On the other side of that is my good friend, Steve Hassan, who was trained to deal with social scientists who were doing participant observation. So you know this guy's coming in and you know you give him the experience that you want him to have to give you the report. And so, you know, the three day workshops that the Moonies do, which are, you know, they're they're LGAP type forms. And, you know, Eileen came away and said, well, only 11% of, of people stayed after the three days. Therefore, this is not a yeah. bad thing. And you're going, it only harms 11% of people. This is not a good thing. I have a different perspective here. But that it is so easy to take somebody, and there are so many other factors. As you say, they may be paid, that there may be some familial connection that they have. There may be some benefit to their reputation for doing this. So with the Moonies, Eileen admitted to going to 14 fully paid five-star holidays to go to Mooney conferences and said that she allowed them to pay for this so that her university wouldn't have to. Former British Prime Minister, UK Prime Minister Ted Heath, went to their meetings as well because, hey, it's a five-star hotel in Hawaii and a free trip. You've got to declare an interest, and if you don't, then it's yeah. worthless. And why on earth would the head of the APA be endorsing any organization surely it's, that should i mean be it's very odd so as i say he was he was he was the head of the apa from 88 to 2003 so i mean it's really right in the middle of mm. i mean he'd been there for a really long time very authoritative um person i mean the the, the other possibility you know to give the, to give him the benefit of the doubt is the the hawthorne effect but he should be aware of that as a as, as a as the head of the apa so they may change their behavior and run things slightly differently when they know that they're being observed. Mm -hmm. But to, to just to for for somebody like that to have been negligent enough to not have looked into the descriptions of what goes on by anyone else while making the endorsement mm -hmm. seems a little bit strange, considering how much the APA had been engaging with people that had criticisms of LGATs um, over the past 10, 15 years. It's, mm -hmm. It seems very unlikely that he was unfamiliar with um, some of the criticisms of, of what takes place in them. Yeah. So this glowing review saying everything was pleasant and everyone was happy and just seems very strange, mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Absolutely. Um, all right, so the third one is more recent. So there's a, a YouTube video called Conversations on Compassion with Werner Ehart. 
Um, so you can have a look at this yourself. I think it was uploaded in 2017. So Erhardt is getting on. He's, he's looking quite old, but he's sitting on stage with somebody named Dr. James Doty, who's a professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University. And I found that there were inaccuracies in terms of what was being said by mm. Dr. Doty. And I actually contacted him and he agreed that what he had said was not true. So I'll, I'll be very careful about what I say here. I'm going to read uh, things in terms of our correspondence, but you can go and watch the, the video in terms of what he mm. does say. Um, I'd like to first mention, though, the way that he was introduced by Erhardt. Given what we know about elevating authority statuses, this is what Erhardt said to, to introduce him. He says, the first thing I need to do is if you don't really know who James Doty is, you're privileged to be in the, pre in the presence of a truly extraordinary human being. Take the time to look up James Doty on the internet so that you can know who you had the chance to be with really, really, really makes my hair stand on end when I think about what the guy has accomplished and maybe even more powerfully who he actually is. Okay, so there's a, I mean, if that's not elevating the authority status of somebody, if you go and you look him up online, it's very impressive. There's pictures of him with the Dalai Lama. You know, he runs the, the care facility at, at Stanford. He's a professor of neurosurgery. So clearly a very impressive person. Mm -hmm. So I'm watching this interaction now, and then Doty gets up and he starts uh, speaking about Erhardt. So they are complimenting each other. It's his, his chance to, to say wonderful things about Erhardt. And he says at one point, he says, if you followed Est, if you, if you know anything about the Landmark Forum, you will know that these organizations do amazing things in people's lives. And then he says very specifically, there have been innumerable scientific studies, sorry, there've been innumerable studies which have demonstrated very scientifically the positive effect that EST and these types of organizations have on people's lives. And so I was sitting there thinking, you know, I've done a literature review on this. I've been studying this for a long time. I don't know of any studies that demonstrate very scientifically. So if he's referring to the studies that are on their websites, he should know as a professor at Stanford what a scientific study is. And I would think that a scientific study is published in a peer-reviewed journal. It's not just a marketing company that you've got to do a survey for you. That's not a, a very scientific study, mm. as he refers to it. So I contacted him. I, I sent him an email and I said, hi, I would really like you to point me towards some of these innumerable scientific studies um, that show the incredible benefits that these organizations have. And he ignored me. And then I waited about a week and then I sent him another email. And I said, I don't know if you missed the previous email. Please, can you point me towards any of these studies that demonstrate very scientifically? And I'd love to read you his response. Mm, please um, do. We'd love so to hear it. What did he say? Okay, so eventually he replies, no studies have yet been completed, so there's nothing published, as well as the final study design and sign-off is not complete. I'm not sure where you found the quote demonstrated very scientifically the positive effect that EST and these types of trainings have on people. It was not from me. I know of no <laughs> such study, only anecdotal statements. 
And then later he sent me another email that just said, if you if the quote is from me, which I don't recall, it is not true. Okay, so oh dear. you've got this incredible authority figure who's been elevated as an authority figure saying these incredible things about these organizations. If you are using the, if you assume the peripheral route is in place, you don't know anything about them. Nobody's going to tell you because they're not allowed to tell you what actually takes place. Is this something worth doing? Well, you've got this guy who's got seen hugging the Dalai Lama and is a professor of neurosurgery at Stanford telling you that it's, that it's amazing. Hmm. You're going to outsource your thinking to, to that person. So hmm. I think that something like that can be very damaging. There's no, there's no point at which um, he recalls the statement. He doesn't make a statement that says, actually, you know, I was, I was wrong about this. So that's floating out. That's floating around out there, and people are making their decisions about um, taking part based on that information, mm -hmm. which he himself acknowledges is not true. Interestingly, Erhardt is sitting next to him while he's saying this, and he's clearly aware that those studies don't exist either. So why does he not say, you know, that's not exactly hundred percent correct? Yeah. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to end up going to one of these these seminars and you're going to be lectured for three days about integrity by these people. Mm. So I find that very interesting. Yeah. Mm. And let me just put in another point about authority. Um, the Dalai Lama um, has also yes. been seen hugging Osahara, the head of Om Shinrikyo, who gave him one and a quarter million dollars and hugging Keith Raniere, the head of Nixium, who's now in prison for yes. 120 years, who gave the Dalai Lama $2 million. Right. So I don't want to undermine anybody's faith here, but um, who we choose as authorities and who we choose as representing what is good in the world, they're shifting sands. Um, exactly. You know, and this is why you need to look beyond the superficial. Yeah. You can't just look at these superficial indicators of authority, of knowledge, of whatever, you have to engage and make sure you understand things uh, for yourself. Mm. Um, yeah. And that is very much the point, isn't it? Um, that we should develop as individuals, we should develop as people individually, that, that we should be able to have our own conscience, our own morality, we should have our own sense of how to be in the world, rather than the authoritarian model, which is where well, I don't know, tell me what to do, which of course, and of course we're all born helpless and we all have to go through acquiring these abilities. And it is probable and likely, as many people have said, Eric from Schopenhauer, um, Stanley Milgram, that perhaps 60% of people will not develop a self because they will yeah. be caught up in the, you know, what are the Jones doing so that I can look right and I can act right and I can do things in the right way. And so the very things that, that we should be nurturing in people are actually being destroyed by our guts. They're making people more conformist to a set of ideas which have not been proved to be healthy for us. And we yeah, do see tragedies is... and disasters on the side of that. I've certainly met people who feel their lives were ruined by their experience I've, I've met a that. I've met a number of people whose lives have been ruined by by taking part either theirs or theirs through the the injury of of family members um 
through family members becoming so obsessed that it just causes a divide. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that the the downside is often not looked at very very carefully. Yeah. So, yeah, have we got to the end of your notes, John? For today, In, end of my notes. Um, I, I don't know if I have mentioned this before, but, but just maybe a, a kind of link on uh, the, the relevance of LGATs in the troubled teen industry. I don't know if we've spoken about that at all. No, please, and please do. I've just done a piece on troubled teens with Casey. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think that, and I won't go into it in, in very much detail, but I think it is important for people to to know that one of the major large group awareness trainings from the 1970s and 1980s was called LifeSpring. Mm. Um and one of its uh, trainers, a, a, a person named David Gilcrease, created an organization called Resource Realizations. And it seems he started offering seminars at a lot of these troubled teen facilities. Mm -hmm. And the seminars, from what I've seen and from what I've looked at, are almost identical to the LifeSpring training. Yeah. So you have some of the bigger LGATs today who will try to screen people out in terms of mental health conditions, um, and vulnerability. Not that I think that their screening is very effective, but what's happening in the troubled teen industry or what has been happening for the last 20, 30 years, even, even more, is that you've had a group of young kids, really, um, who are a vulnerable, vulnerable group to start off with. Many of them have got pre-existing um, conditions, mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, uh, you know, borderline personality disorder, these sorts of things. So you're taking a very, very vulnerable group of people and you're putting them through a process um, that, you know, healthy adults can often be affected yeah. uh, negatively by. And there's no screening going on uh, for them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, th I think it's just important that people are aware of that. And I, I think it's... It's obviously terrible, but one of the useful things that's that's come out with a lot of exposure of the troubled teen industry is that people are starting to care. So it's one thing when adults get involved in Scientology and in LGATs and that sort of thing, a, a lot of people kind of say, well, you know, you've got freedom of choice, you know, forget about the manipulation that got you in there, but, you know, tough luck. When it's when it's happening to kids, people are are a lot more uh, sensitive about it, and I and it's great because now they're looking at what's going on, they're looking at what takes place in these in these seminars, and they're asking important questions about what evidence is there for their effectiveness, what is what does the evidence say about possible harm that could be caused, and should these teenagers be going through these programs and hopefully should anyone be going through these programs as the as the next step yeah i mean and, and looking at material on the so-called brat camps uh, boot camps for teenagers and finding that some poor teenager can be dragged out of their home out of their bed yeah. in the middle of the night kidnapped um and and then taken away and isolated and put through a program which is incredibly similar to the Chinese thought reform program. Yeah. This is, is truly shocking. We did have some kind of comparison in this country, which I talked about in, in, with Casey when we talked about troubled teens. In the early 70s, there was a reform school called Pepper Was it uh, Casey from Cult Vault? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know Casey. And uh, she's great. Um, so it's something she's done. She's interviewed, I think, six survivors of these camps on, on her channel. Yeah. 
But I brought up the, the case of Pepper Harrow, which was this kind of hippie run um, reform school in the early 70s in, in the UK. And they were just ridiculously liberal with the kids. You know, the thing that shocked me when I, because they came, they revisited 20 years later and they talked to four of the six kids who'd been involved in the original documentary. In the original documentary, you've got an eight-year-old walking around smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm liberal, yeah. but that's a bit much. But we then find in, in around about 1980 under Margaret Thatcher, a man called William Whitelaw brought in what was called the short, sharp shock, quoting about chopping people's heads off in the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, but he thought it was funny. So that kids yeah. would now be put into this boot camp environment and forced through this thing, this militaristic training. And we have yeah. statistics. Pepper Harrow had a reoffense rate of 10%. The white law program yeah. had a reoffense rate of 80 percent i think that yeah. looks to the problem and it's like you you cannot brutalize people um yeah. into compassion you cannot brutalize people into fitting in you, yeah. you're going to hammer them into subservience does not That's work. All. i'm yeah. sorry so ruthless compassion does not work no it, it's and, and tough love is, is so often used as an excuse for for you know you know you've got to be cruel to be cruel fundamentally you know it's not yeah. about being helpful to anybody um so so yeah i it it's good to see that that there is um exposure of these terrible criminal assaults upon children and children should have the same rights as the rest as adults to not being kidnapped to not being locked up to not being isolated yeah. in a little pup tent for two weeks not allowed to speak to people it doesn't work it won't make a better world yeah grand so yeah thanks john um, thank you it's been fascinating great yeah there was a lot that we managed to get through there so hopefully it's stuck with uh with with some people um yeah, but I mean, all of these ideas, again, are, are in my, my PhD. So mm. if, you, if anyone wants to run through them more slowly, the contents does kind of tell you where all of these things are discussed and you can run through the evidence um, in your own time. And we you will have that. If you have the, the, the motivation and the ability, then, um, yeah, it's uh, you don't have to read through the full 500 pages. You can just find the parts that are, are relevant to you and, and have a look at the evidence yeah yeah and take a look at the, the the first video we did and we will soon be uh your your video for ixa will the embargo will run out and we'll be able to yeah um, less than two weeks great yeah, yeah looking forward to that um and uh, we we will notify you when the video goes up so that if you want to respond to comments and hopefully there will be some some comments then um people can address you directly with with any questions they have right so Thank you very much indeed, and um, we'll uh, arrange something in the future once we have switched off the recording and the, the audience are no longer watching. So we'll do that okay. in secret afterwards. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. John. Thanks a lot. Right. Cheers, then. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.